Chapter 3, Part E of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter 3, Part E. During my drive, several walkers, loaded with awkward bundles, raised imploring thumbs for a ride, but knowing to what lengths desperation will drive people and not wishing to be robbed of my car, I had pressed my foot down and driven on. But now, as I went along Temple near Rampart, a beautiful woman, incongruously, for it was in the middle of a hot October, dressed in a fur coat, and with each gloved hand grasping the handle of a suitcase, stepped in front of me, and I had to jam on the brakes to avoid running over her. The car stopped, radiator almost touching her, but she made no attempt to move. A small hat with a tiny fringe of veil concealed her eyes, but her sullen mouth looked furiously at me as, rigidly clutching her luggage, she barred my path. Fearing some trap, I turned off the ignition and unobtrusively slid the keys into a side pocket before getting out and going to her. "'Excuse me, miss. Can I help you?' She threw her head back, and her eyes, brown and glistening, appraised me through heavily painted lashes. I stood there stiffly, uncomfortable under her gaze, till I suddenly remembered my hat and lifted it with an awkward bow. This seemed to satisfy her, for still without speaking, she nodded and thrust the two suitcases at me. Not knowing what else to do, I took them from her, and she promptly, after smoothing her gloves, walked toward the passenger's side of the car. "'You want me to take you somewhere, miss?' I inquired quite superfluously. She bent her head the merest fraction, and then rested her fingers on the door handle, waiting for me to open it for her. I ran as fast as I could with the bags. They were beautifully matched, expensive luggage, to put them in the turtle, and then had to make myself still more ridiculous by running back for the forgotten key resting in the side pocket.' When I had finally stowed away the baggage and opened the door for her, she got in with the barest of condescending nods for my efforts and sat staring ahead. I drove very slowly, nipping off little glances of her profile as we moved along. Her cheeks were smooth as a china doll's, her nose the chiseled replica of some lovely antique marble, her mouth a living study of rounded lines. Never had I been so close to such an alluring woman. We reached the Civic Center, and I automatically headed for the Intelligencer building. But I could not bear to part company so quickly, and so I turned left instead, out Macy Street. Now we found ourselves caught in the traffic snailing eastward. In low gear I drove a block, then stopped and waited till a clear ten feet ahead permitted another painfully slow forward motion. Still my passenger had no word to say, but kept staring ahead, though she could see nothing before her except the trunk-laden rear end of a tottery Ford long past its majority. You, I stumbled, I, that is, I mean, wasn't there somewhere in particular you wanted to go? She nodded, still without looking at me, and for the first time spoke. Her voice was deep and had the timbre of some old bronze bell. Yuma, she said. Yuma, Arizona? 
I asked stupidly. Again she nodded faintly. In a panic I reckoned the contents of my wallet. About forty dollars, I thought. No, thirty. Would that take us to Yuma? Barely, perhaps, and I should have to wire the intelligencer for money to return. Besides, in the present condition of the roads, the journey would be a matter of days, and I knew she would accept nothing but the very best. How could I do it? Should I return to the intelligencer office and try to get an advance on next week's salary? I had heard from more than one disgruntled reporter that it was an impossibility. Good heavens, I thought, I shall lose her. Whatever happened, I must take her as far as I could. I must not let her go before I was absolutely forced to. This resolution made, my first thought was to cut the time, for poking along in this packed mass I was burning gasoline without getting anywhere. Taking advantage of my knowledge of the side roads, I turned off at the first chance, and was able to resume a normal speed as I avoided towns and main highways. Still she continued silent, until at length, passing orange groves heavy with coppery fruit, I ventured to speak myself. My name is Albert Weiner. Bert. The right rear tire kicked up some dust as I nervously edged off the road. Somewhere overhead a plane ripped through the hot silk of the sky. Uh, what, um, won't you tell me yours? Still facing ahead, she replied, it isn't necessary. After a few more miles I ventured again. You live, we're living, in Los Angeles? She shook her head impatiently. Well, I thought, really. Then... Poor thing, she's probably terribly upset. Home and family lost, perhaps. Money gone, destitute. Going east, swallowing pride, make a new start with the help of unsympathetic relatives. She has only me to depend on. I must not fail her. Break the ice, whatever attitude her natural pride dictates. Offer your services. I'm on the daily intelligencer, I said. I'm the man who first walked on top of the grass. Ten miles later, I inquired, Wouldn't you be more comfortable with that heavy fur coat off? I can put it in the back with your luggage, and it won't be crushed. She shook her head more impatiently. Suddenly, I remembered the car radio installed a few days before. A little cheerful music calms the soul. I turned it on and got a band playing a brand new hit, Green as Grass. Oh, no, no noise. Of course, how thoughtless of me. The very word grass reminded her of her tragic situation. I kicked myself for my tactlessness. We skirted Riverside and joined the highway again at Beaumont, where we were unavoidably packed into the slow-moving mass. I'm sorry, I apologized, but I can take a chance again at Banning and drive up into the mountains to get away from this. An hour later, I suggested stopping for something to eat. She shook her head. But it's getting late, I said. Pretty soon we shall have to think about stopping for the night. She raised her left hand imperatively. Drive all night. This would certainly solve part of my financial problem, but I was hungry and unreasonably more irritated by her refusal of food than her unsociability. I have to eat even if you don't, I told her rudely. 
I'm going to stop at the next place I see. With the same left hand, she made a gesture of resignation. I pulled up before the roadside cafe. Won't you change your mind and come in, at least for a cup of coffee? No. I went in angrily and ate. Who was she to treat me like a hired chauffeur? A mere pickup, I raged. A stray woman found on a street. By God, she would have the courtesy at least to address me, her benefactor, civilly, or else I'd abandon her here on the highway and return to Los Angeles. I finished my meal full of determination and strode back purposefully toward the car. She was still sitting rigid, staring through the windshield. I got in. You know, I began. She did not hear me. I turned on the ignition, pressed the starter button, and drove ahead. Sodden-eyed with lack of sleep and outraged at her taciturnity, I breakfasted alone on the soggiest wheat cakes and the muddiest coffee I have ever demeaned my stomach with. The absence of my customary morning paper added the final touch to my wretchedness. But one would have thought to look at my companion that she had been refreshed by a lengthy repose, had bathed at leisure, and eaten the most delicate of continental breakfasts. There was not a smudge on her suede gloves, nor a speck upon her small hat, and the mascara on her eyelashes might have been renewed but a moment before. The road curved through vast hummocks of sand, which for no good reason reminded me of the grass in its early stages. Reminded, I wanted to know what the latest news was, how far the weed had progressed in the night. Thoughtlessly, without remembering her interdiction, I turned the knob. squeaked the radio. Please, she said, in anything but a pleading tone, and turned it off. Well, I thought. This is certainly going too far. I opened my mouth to voice the angry words, but a look at her stopped me. I couldn't help but feel her imperviousness was fragile. That harsh speech might shatter a calm too taut to be anything but hysterical. I drove on without speaking until the hummocks gave way again to smooth desert. We'll soon be in Yuma, I announced. Aren't you going to tell me your name? It isn't important, she repeated. But it's important to me, I told her boldly. I want to know who the beautiful lady was whom I drove from Los Angeles to Yuma. She shook her head irritably, and we crossed the bridge into Arizona. All right, this is Yuma. Now where? Here. Right here in the middle of the road? She nodded. I looked helplessly at her but her gaze was still fixed ahead. Resignedly, I got out, took her bags from the turtle, and set them beside the road, opened the door. She descended, smoothed her gloves, straightened the edge of her veil, brushed an immaterial speck from her coat, and, after the briefest of acknowledging nods, picked up her grips. But can I carry them for you? She did not even answer this with her usual head shake, but began walking, resolutely, back over the way we had come. Bewildered, I watched her a moment, and then got into the car and turned it around, trying to keep her in sight in the rear-view mirror as I did so. It was an awkward procedure on a highway heavy with traffic, 
by the time I had reversed my direction, she was gone. End of chapter 3, part E